Our sermon text for this morning is Jeremiah, all of chapter 2 and the first five verses of chapter 3. I'm going to focus on the first 19 verses, so that's what I will read for our scripture reading. Again, give careful attention to God's holy word. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, Where is the Lord? Who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and sea. Send to Kedar and consider diligently And see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the people of Noth and Tapanese have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself? in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when He led you in a way, in the way. And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. The word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. (laughs) 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we look at it now, open our ears and our eyes that we might understand. And open our hearts that we might know and trust you alone as our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw how this, this unsuspecting youth named Jeremiah found out that God had appointed him to be a prophet before he was even conceived. He had objections, but God overruled those objections and gave Jeremiah what he needed for what he called him to do. And God was with him. In fact, God made him strong enough to stand against the rulers and all the people who despised him as he brought the word of God to them. And Jeremiah didn't know it yet, but he was going to proclaim a message of judgment and repentance for 40 years before it would come true. Jeremiah had a hard life ahead of him. So now in chapter 2, it's time for Jeremiah's first assignment. And in verse verse 1, God tells him, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem. Now remember, His hometown of Anathoth is just three miles away from Jerusalem. He can see the walls of Jerusalem from his town. So he has a little bit of a hike, probably to Jerusalem's gates. Somewhere somewhere that many people, including the rulers, would gather and hear him. And he starts out with words describing a relationship. Now frequently in Scripture, The covenant relationship between God and his people is described in terms of a marriage. And here, God begins as if in a nostalgic way, he's looking back to the honeymoon with Israel. And God says, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness. He's looking back to the Exodus. The people of God The people of God followed God out of Egypt. They committed to do all that God said. Now, of course, we know there were problems. They sinned often. But each time they repented and they followed God again. And he provided for them daily through the manna. He gave them water. And they moved or stayed put as he directed them with the cloud and the pillar of fire. And in verse 3, it says... Israel was holiness to the Lord. They were separate from all other nations. They were his people, and he was their God. And it goes on. They were the first fruits of his increase. They were the first nation to be God's people in this way. But much more was planned. They were the first fruits, but there was a greater harvest of all of the nations that was supposed to follow. And God's protection over them is shown as it says, all that devour Israel will offend, disaster will come upon them. God protected Israel. As they traveled through the wilderness, no other nation could attack them. No one could conquer them because of his protection. It was the honeymoon. Israel was devoted to God and God lovingly watched over Israel. So can you imagine in the minds of those 
who are hearing Jeremiah at this time in Jerusalem, what would they be thinking? Ah, yes. Oh, he's quite young to be a prophet. But, but these are good words. We're the honored people of God. And, and this is God's city with God's temple in it. They were very proud of their heritage. They were proud of, of what they thought of themselves. But then Jeremiah changes his tone in verse 4. He again gets their attention. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me and followed idols and have become idolaters. The message began with the honeymoon. There's no more talk of a honeymoon. The honeymoon is long over. And no matter what they say or how it looks, Israel is no longer devoted to following God. And this has been going on for quite a while. Because God says their fathers or ancestors had gone far from Him. And what's God's, what's He saying with this question? What injustice have you found? I mean, it could be a purely rhetorical question with, with the obvious expected answer, well, none. God is perfectly just. But with Judah as they are now, in their pride, are they going to be humble and recognize God for who He is? And recognize their sin for what it is? Probably not. Now, it's more likely that this is a question saying, come on, present your evidence. What injustice, what fault have you found in me? Let's hear it. This whole chapter is like a court scene. Up through verse 8 is giving the background of the case. How did things start out? Where are they now? And through verse 19, the charges are laid out. And then the rest of chapter 2 piles up the evidence of Israel's guilt. And with that initial question in verse 4, God states the history of the problem. They've gone far from Him. They've followed idols. They've become idolaters. When Israel left Egypt and they arrived at, at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with them. It's in Exodus 19. Starting in verse 4, God says to the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God had made a loving, glorious covenant with them. And in that covenant, there were tremendous blessings and there were also things they had to do. Conditions they had to fulfill as God's people. But here they are now, many centuries later, and God asks, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me? Has God done something to break the covenant? No, 
It's Israel that has followed God, followed idols and become idolaters. And the, the, the wording there of following looks back to the honeymoon period in verse 2. There God says, when you went after me in the wilderness, and the word translated went after, that's the same word as translated here as followed. Looking back with nostalgia, you were devoted to me in the wilderness, like on a honeymoon. But now, you're devoted to idols. You give your devotion to vapor. The word for idols is a word that means vapor, breath, mist, something very insubstantial, like on a cold day when you breathe out and you can see your breath for a moment and then it's gone. That's how substantial an idol is. They have, tra- have traded following the one true God, the most substantial thing that exists, the one who created everything else that exists, They've traded following and being devoted to Him for worshiping vapor. And in doing that, they themselves have become as substantial as vapor because you become like what you worship. They worshiped these idols. And they made alliances with the pagan nations, thinking that that would protect them. But when they followed God in the wilderness, He protected them. He provided for them. He made them a nation and enabled them to conquer and wipe out many other nations that were mightier than they were. But now, they follow something that is nothing. And in turn, they have become nothing. They become a nation that is shrinking and enslaved and is unable to stand up to the other nations. In verses 6 and 7, You'd think they would realize it at some point and say things like, where is Yahweh who led us out of Egypt, who guided us, who protected us, who gave us the land? Where is He? But instead of seeking God in that way, they took the the fertile, beautiful land that He had given them and they defiled it with their wickedness and their idols And God has been extremely patient with them because this has happened over a period of a thousand years. It was since then when he gave them the law and then there was the whole period of the judges and all the kings up to the time of Jeremiah. Those who are supposed to be God's people are far from being the faithful people of God. So when we see what's happened, Over a thousand years, it's easy to understand why God would ask this question of Israel. What fault have you found in me? But what about today? Have we found fault with God? God blessed Israel by protecting them and giving them a beautiful land. How have we been blessed? We live in one of the wealthiest societies that has existed up to this point. We can, we can go buy some land and, and grow our own food or we can go to a store or, or to a restaurant and buy just about anything we want. We can jump in a car and travel farther in a day than they could travel in a month. We have homes where we can adjust the temperature to a tenth of a degree. 
And we can do that while we're away just by talking to our phone. The abilities and choices that we have are amazing when compared to the past. Blessings given to us from God. And in the Western world here, many of our temptations actually come as a result of all the blessings. We have an amazing array of Christian resources that are available to us. For instance, Wycliffe Bible Translators. They estimate that there are 2,000 languages that don't yet have a translation of the Bible. We have hundreds of translations, over 450 of them in English. And then apart from the wide range of different translations, there are all the different marketing packages. If you do a search, you'll find things such as the devotional Bible, the daily Bible, the men's Bible, the women's Bible, the, women's, the, the Women in Faith Bible, the Life Application Bible, Everyday Life Bible, the New Spirit-Filled Life Bible, Family Foundations Bible, and on and on and on it goes. We're clearly spoiled with choices. But, but has that abundance caused us or helped us to be more faithful? Well, various research groups have looked at this and they have shown that even with these choices, Christians don't read their Bibles. Of those who regularly attend church, over 40% read their, their Bible once or twice a month. 20% said they don't read it at all. Now, that, that would probably mean, well, Christians don't know their Bible very well, do they? And that would be true. For instance, 81% of those who identify themselves as born-again Christians think that God helps those who help themselves is a verse in the Bible. People don't know their Bibles. Now contrast that with a congregation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa. One man there said that when someone in a family is able to get a Bible of their own, they cut it up, literally. And they hand it out among the family so that everyone has some part of the precious Word of God. And they read it and they study it diligently. In our abundance, we've lost sight of how precious God's Word is. And that, that's just one small example. God has given us so much. And to whom much is given much is required. What have we done with all of the blessings that God has given us? And in terms of being thankful to Him, bearing fruit for His kingdom, being salt and light in the world, and, and participating in taking the gospel to those around us. There is so much to be thankful for and so much to be faithful with. I mean, really, when you look at it, anytime we sin, we turn from God and we do what we decide rather than what God says. And when we do that, what we're really doing is saying we find fault with God or we find fault with His Word. Israel continued on that path for hundreds of years, getting further and further away from God. We need to humble ourselves and be thankful. We need to pay attention to God's Word and follow Him rather than, than drift or run 
off on our own way. Now look at verse 8. There it says, The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. These were the authorities and the leaders. They should have been constantly leading the people to God, constantly teaching them to follow God with their whole heart. But they didn't do that. Now, not many of us are are, are priests or rulers or prophets like Jeremiah is talking about here. But many of us are in positions of authority. So what we do affects others. And probably the most prevalent position of authority that we are in is as parents. And and here's a problem that we can fall into. You personally, you, you you believe in the gospel. You faithfully come to church, you, you worship. Your faith in Christ is real. It's been that way for, for many years. So you've gotten to the point where, where you assume the gospel. I mean, how could it be any other way? Of course the gospel's true. And in your Christian life, what you're interested in are other issues. So you spend a lot of time reading and, and debating about those things. And, and those things can be important, yet making them your focus can cause a real problem. Because our children learn from what they see. So from what they see in you, what do they believe is truly important? I mean, think about it from their vantage point. As they watch and listen to you, what are you showing to be core to life? What are you excited about? Is it faith in Christ and what he did for you on the cross? Is it love for God and His Word? Is it it love for His people? Is it love for your neighbor? Does does what you say and do show that Jesus is central to your life? Or does it look more like, well, yeah, the gospel, yeah, it's it's good, but what's really important is is politics or, or the latest blog debate. Or what's really important is your work. Or does it look like The most important thing is a list of do's and don'ts. As your children learn from your example, will they they believe and act in a moral fashion, but not have the love of Jesus Christ deep in their heart as, as the core of their life? I mean, if they don't see and hear you seeking and thanking God, loving Him throughout your daily life, why would they? And even if you're not a parent of small children right now, how do other people around you see you? What would they say drives you? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have you found something missing in Him? And you've added something or replaced Him with something else? That question is a challenge for us all. And we need to keep it ever in front of us. So the people of Israel... Those in a covenant relationship with God who were holiness to the Lord and first fruits of all the nations, they were clearly not living out their special relationship with God. Instead, they were breaking the covenant and they were putting other things in place of God. 
And that sets the background of the case of the covenant. Now come the charges. In verses 9 through 13. In verse 9 it says, Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. What are those charges? We start in verse 10. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and sea. Travel to the west, even past Cyprus, and investigate. Send to Gadar and consider diligently. Go, go to the east, as far as Gadar, and look there. And see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. So what are the charges? Well, look, look to the west. Look, look to the east. As far as you can go, you'll find people worshiping all kinds of gods that are just vapor. But, but look closer at those nations. Do they ever change their gods? No. The, the gods of the nations are not really gods at all, but at least they're loyal to the non-gods they have. In stark contrast, Israel knows the one and only true and living God. Their glory. The only real God of substance and life and power. And what have they done with that God? They've swapped him for vapor. What kind of a deal is that? To trade the living God for lifeless nothing. Even the creation itself would be appalled at such unbelievable disloyalty. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses called the heavens to witness the making of the covenant. But look at verse 12 here. It says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. God calls the heavens again to witness the breaking of the covenant. The, the sin of idolatry is, is bad among nations who don't know God, but, but you expect it there. But not among those who do know their God. Throughout the Bible, the, the prophets and, and Jesus gave their fiercest condemnation to those of God's own people who know the living God and yet reject Him for other things. Idolatry among God's people should be shocking. And yet we know it's, it's still prevalent today. Christians can often be found who are, who are living by the same idolatries as the world around them. That's what Israel was doing. They were adopting the idols of the nations around them. Now today, it's usually not idols in the form of statues. It's things like consumerism. You know, Christians living for what they can get. I'll follow God as long as He gives me what I want. Or a dependence on and a, and a belief in science. You know, I'll do, if, if I do what medical science or alternative medical science says, then I will be well. I'll have complete control over my health. Or salvation by government. Or by eliminating government. If we can just get that right, then all will be well. Oh, and then there's good old self-centeredness. I'll live for my own personal comfort and desires. Now, 
Now, granted, some of, of the aspects of science, medicine, and, and government, and those things, they do have value when used rightly. But, but even as Christians, we get sucked into thinking that if we do all those things just right, then we'll have a long and fulfilling life. We'll be in control just the way we want it. We forget that God is the source of all life. He is the one that sustains us every moment and gives us everything we have. Our security must be in Him, not in our own efforts, not in our own control. And sometimes it takes words like these in Jeremiah to wake us up and hopefully bring us to repentance and turn us back to the true giver of life and of all good things. You could boil it down and sum up Israel's sin very succinctly in just two words. The charges would be apostasy and idolatry. And in verses 13, God spells out those charges, but he does it with a real-to-life illustration of the time. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now imagine living in a dry climate, and you're a farmer fortunate enough to have a perennial spring of water on your land. It's bubbling up from deep down and with pure, clear water for, for crops and for livestock and, and all of your family's needs. You'd never need to worry about a lack of water, even, even during a drought. What a valuable piece of land that would be. But now imagine you route that spring off of your land and you abandon it. And then, through much time and effort and hard labor, you dig a cistern. Now, a cistern is a large hole, like the size of a room, and it's carved out of the rock below. Its whole purpose is to hold water. Now, during times of rain, if it's a good cistern, it will fill up and and then it'll provide water through the dry spells. Of course, since it's in the ground, animals will also want to use it. So there'll be insects and frogs and snakes and other things in there. And sometimes maybe a mouse or two or a possum or a skunk will fall in and drown. You know, you'll have to fish them out, get them out of there. And now remember, along with being used for crops and livestock, this is your family's drinking water. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? Well, if it worked out, it might be your family's drinking water, but it turns out after all that work of chipping out this, this big hole in the rock, there are cracks in it, and it won't hold any water at all. And that's what you traded for a living, pure spring. So God exposes their apostasy as the height of stupidity. He exposes their idolatry as the depths of futility. How can anyone who has experienced the grace, love, and provision of the living God turn away from Him? And how can those who know God as the source of life and goodness try to find their satisfaction and their security in the flawed work of their own hands? It's, it's absurd and, and ridiculous to think about. Yet those are the charges that God lays against Israel. And what's the evidence for the charges? Well, in verse 14, God begins with that. 
He asked some questions. Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he plundered? In the Exodus, God delivered Israel from Egypt so that Israel was holiness to the Lord, separated to God. But now, Israel is a vassal slave nation. They're a slave to whatever nation they happen to turn to at the moment. And all of their treasures have been given away to these powerful nations to solicit their help. And this is the way it's been for quite some time. Because a servant or a slave, that's someone who's been captured. But a homeborn slave, that's someone who's been born to a captured slave, born into captivity. So a homeborn slave, Israel has been a vassal slave nation for generations because they didn't continue following their God. And in verse 15, the lions of Assyria, their armies have inflicted heavy damage on some of their cities. Verse 16, the cities of Noph and Tapanes are mentioned. Well, Noph was the capital of Egypt. Tapanes was Egypt's military base near Israel. They had turned to Egypt, and Egypt made them their servants. As verse 17 says, they brought this all on themselves because they forsook God. God is their fountain of living waters. But in verse 18, instead of depending on God, they turned to the rivers of Egypt and Assyria. They put their trust in political alliances rather than in God. They've reaped what they've sown. The more they have turned from God, the worse things have become. And at the end of verse 19, God says, Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you. So the charges are clear. The verdict is clear. They have forsaken God, and they are guilty. Now, in the last half of this chapter, God makes the magnitude of Israel's sin even more clear with metaphor after metaphor, showing what they've done. Just looking at some of them. We won't go into them, we won't look at them in depth. But in verse 22, they could use lye and a lot of soap, but they can never wash away the stain of their sin. It's a permanent stain. They can't get rid of it. Verse 24, God compares their, their eagerness for idols to the way a female wild donkey in heat looks for any male to mate with. That's how eager they were to find idols. Any idol they could find, they would worship. Verse 28, instead of the one true God, they have a different God or idol in every city. Verse 33, God says they could teach prostitutes a thing or two with how eagerly they go after idols. Israel's sin before God is great. And intermixed with all of those metaphors throughout the second half of the chapter there, Israel is shown to be utterly confused and self-deceived with the things that they say. We go back and look at those. In verse 20, Israel says, I will not transgress. In verse 23, I'm not polluted. I've not gone after Baals. At verse 25, there is no hope. No, for I loved aliens and after them I will go. Verse 27, they say to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, 
you gave me birth. And also in verse 27, it's, it's when they come into trouble. Then they say to God, oh, arise and save us. Verse 31, we are lords. We will come no more to you. And in verse 35, because I am innocent, surely God's anger shall turn from me. I have not sinned. The, the confusion is amazing. But that's what happens when people, even, even covenant people, become so enmeshed in sin that they can't even think straight anymore. We, we see that happening today in the gender confusion that is even making its way into the church. The first verses of chapter 3 close out the section. Verse 1 begins with, They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Chapter 2 began with the words of a honeymoon. Looking back to the beginning of the covenant relationship between God and Israel, when God said, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. It was a relationship of, of love and devotion, an exclusive relationship. But the charges have been laid that that relationship has been violated. And the evidence has been presented and it's, it's clear and it's overwhelming. And now God talks of divorce. As we look at this, as we looked at this verse a couple of months ago, we saw that it alludes to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. <clears throat> there the law says that if there is a divorce between a husband and a wife and the woman marries another man, she can't return to her first husband. And the first husband can't take her back. That would defile the land. They cannot be brought back together. It's prohibited. There's no question. Judah is guilty, horribly guilty as charged. The love and devotion for God that was there at the start is gone. And there have been numerous relationships with idols since then. According to the law, there would be no hope for Israel. No hope of reconciliation. No hope to once again be the people of God. If it ended here, that would be it. No hope. But as we saw when we looked at chapter 3, God still calls Judah to repent. And he says, return to me. Amazingly, God will take Israel back. But there must be true repentance from the heart with deeds worthy of repentance. So even at this point, with this guilty verdict, there is hope because of God. Are you in a place right now where, when it comes down to it, you've been finding fault with God? You've been doing that for quite some time and you've turned away from Him and you've been chasing your own idols. Maybe of wealth or, or sexual sin or or just satisfying your own desires. Remember, all those idols, whatever they are, they're nothing but vapor. And they'll leave you with nothing but judgment. 
The only way back is repentance. Turning away from those things and turning your devotion to the one true God. The one who loved you in spite of your idolatry and gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take your sin and pay your penalty. Turn to him while you still can. Now many of us would say, well, no, I'm not there. But I know there are times when I do turn from God. But I repent and I turn back. Well, so, so we've not gone so far from God. But as we look at Israel and Judah, we might ask, well, how could they have gotten so far away? How did they go from being exclusively devoted to the one and only true God who loved them and did so many miraculous things for them? How did they get to a point where they had completely forsaken him and they would turn to any idol they could find? Well, remember way back at the time of Moses. After Moses died, Joshua led the people into the land. And they conquered the nations there and they took possession of the land that God had given them. They were faithful during the time of Joshua. But in Judges 2, beginning in verse 10, it says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which He had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. A generation arose that did not know the Lord. They clearly did not pass on to their children a deep knowledge and love of God. So their children began to serve idols. And from that time on, there were times when they turned to God, and there were times, even decades, when they turned to idols. And going back and forth between God and idols, that became the pattern up to the time of Jeremiah. And one of the things revealed by these words in Jeremiah is the hideousness of idolatry. It's like a wife who turns from her loving, devoted husband to the life of a prostitute. To turn to God, to turn from God, to any idol is to say there is some fault or, or shortcoming in God. But, but we know God is perfect in every way. So clearly... We don't know Him well enough. And in our rebellion, instead of pursuing Him, we seek out others. A few chapters later, in Jeremiah chapter 9, in verses 23 and 24, it says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. What's critical is to know God. And related to that, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Again, knowing God. The more we know God, the more strongly we will be devoted to Him. The more we know God, the less attractive sin becomes. The more we know God, the more our cares and concerns in this world fall into their proper perspective. The more we know God, the more holy we become. The more we know God, the more like Him we become. So what can we do to know God more? Well, we, we worship Him. We pray. We also learn about Him from His Word. And to turn knowledge about Him into knowing Him, we take all that we learn and we, we meditate on it. We, we, we dwell on it before Him. We pray about it with Him. And we live it out before Him. We have to spend time with Him and in His Word to get to know Him. And the more we do that, and then actually do what He says, the more we will know, not, not just about Him, but the more we will know Him and trust Him. So what, what fault have you found with God? Whenever you realize that you have done that, confess it. Thank Him for His forgiveness through Christ's work on the cross. And then, diligently, get to know your God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we confess how easily we turn aside from you and your word. Open our eyes to the ugliness of our idolatry and to the glory of who you are. Teach us of yourself so that we not only know about you, but so that we truly know you. May we be those who rejoice more than anything else in the fact that we know and love you deeply. Thank you that you have begun a good work in us and you will bring that work to completion. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.